welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. During the past month, we have discussed several recently released decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court, which concerns voting rights and political participation. Tonight, we continue the discussion of those recent groundbreaking decisions with our focus tonight on the court's affirmative action decision. Our focus tonight is on students for fair admissions versus Harvard College and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where the court concluded that a consideration of race in the admissions process violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In Grutta versus Bollinger, a 2003 law school admission decision involving the University of Michigan, the court approved the limited use of race in the admissions process where it was used to further a compelling state interest and was narrowly tailored to accomplish that interest. Diversity on campus had been designated as a compelling state interest in undergraduate and graduate admissions in past opinions, but no more. For this discussion, we are joined by our resident constitutional law expert, Donald Corbett, who teaches constitutional law, and Tamika Moses, who teaches evidence and criminal procedure. Both are professors at the NCCU School of Law. So thank you all uh, very much for joining us for this very important discussion. Thank you for having me, Professor Joyner. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that your, your, your views are going to be highly uh, anticipated uh, by our audience. Uh, people are still fuming about the uh, decision and trying to figure out exactly what it means. And we have come to the two of you to bring some clarity to our understanding of this, uh, of this decision. So Professor Corbett, I wanna start with you. Can you kind of explain to our audience the uh, significant uh, history of affirmative actions and how it has been used in the uh, college admissions uh, process? Sure, Us, and, and once again, thank you for having me on the show and allowing me to participate in the discussion. I think the easiest way to describe affirmative action is kind of a set of, of policies or procedures that are designed to kind of both eliminate unlawful discrimination and remedy the effects of prior unlawful discrimination. It can really take on lots of different forms uh, and, and attempt to create lots of different remedies for different people. I think largely though, it refers to these programs and policies where certain facets of your identity like race are considered in the distribution of, of opportunities or the distribution of resources. And, and it's been a foundation of upward mobility for minority groups and for women for several decades now. Uh, in the context that we're talking about today, 
it's it's really about how colleges and universities consider the race of an applicant as part of its decision whether to admit or deny that individual to their institution. So uh, proponents of the program believe that uh, having a diverse student body in an increasingly diverse uh, uh, United States of America means that we will have leadership uh, positions and opportunities that are reflective of the entirety of our population. Uh, those who would argue against this particular kind of a remedy would argue that it is simply reverse discrimination and if we're going to eliminate racial discrimination we have to eliminate all types of it. And unfortunately, this is where, at least unfortunately from my perspective, this is where the majority of the Supreme Court came down in this particular opinion and decided that uh, race should not be considered by undergraduate institutions when they're assessing the candidacy of kids that apply to their schools. Well, Professor Moses, let me just switch to you. And can you kind of talk about how the uh, Harvard College, which is a private institution, and the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is a public institution, got uh, involved in, uh, in, in, in this litigation? And how does uh, affirmative action fit into what it was that uh, these two institutions were engaged in? Sure. So I'll start, I guess, with the um, Grutter case, which you briefly mentioned in your introduction um, back in 2003, um, when the court was considering the role of affirmative action in admissions. Um, they did note that one, diversity is a compelling governmental interest, and therefore race could be considered as one factor among many when considering applicants for college admissions. Um, and so based on the factual history that is in the majority opinion in this particular case, UNC and Harvard were applying um, this particular um, affirmative action landscape to their admission process, right? Both schools had a process by which they went through different fa um, phases of the admission process where they would look at applicants as a whole, right? You look at race in addition to other things such as socioeconomic status, application essays, and a host of other things. Um, and so to their credit, they were applying the framework that was applied or established back in the Grutter case. Um, notwithstanding that, there were a group of petitioners in this particular case who um, declared essentially that the fact that race was a factor at all made it unconstitutional and therefore violated the Equal Protection Clause. And so what that did was just started a host of litigation related to those claims. And in the lower courts below, each of these um, proceedings went through um, a trial phase, particularly the Harvard case in particular went through an extensive trial um, that consisted of expert testimony and testimony um, from various students and others um, related to the benefits of the affirmative action um, procedure that was applied in those schools. Um, and they also discussed the fact that this was beneficial to the university's goal of diversity. Um, and so the lower courts essentially ruled in favor of um, the schools and determined that their policies basically met the precedent that was established back in Grutter. Um, in one case, the um, appellate court ruled in favor in the schools throughout the appellate process. In the other case, a petition for cert was granted before judgment was even rendered. 
Um, and so that's essentially how we got here, right? Both schools were applying the precedent that was set out by the court in the past. A group of students disagreed with that precedent and decided to challenge it once again, despite the um, legal landscape of affirmative action, for lack of a better phrase, that was already being applied and issued appropriately um, in both schools. Well, you know, the uh, both of these institutions uh, had a long history of uh, exclusion of uh, African-Americans uh, from their uh, institutions for decades uh, and uh, certainly are not uh, the uh, innocent uh, victims in this case. But can you kind of talk about uh, how uh, Asian students were incorporated in this uh, action as plaintiffs by this uh, Students for Fair Admissions uh, organization when in fact Asians uh, receive some of the same advantages or privileges as other racial groups in the admissions process where their race is a uh, plus factor in uh, the uh, admissions uh, calculus. So how is it that they were deemed to be injured in uh, this uh, context when they are, I guess, are overperforming? in the admission process in colleges and universities uh, in this uh, in this country. So uh, Russ Corbett, we want to start with you on that. Sure, sure. So just as some, some very quick background, Professor Joyner, these cases were brought by a group called Students for Fair Admissions. Uh, it's not really a group of students. It's an organization that is run by a gentleman named Edward Bloom. I think is how you pronounce his name. And he has made targeting these kinds of programs and dismantling them a lifelong goal. I think he's filed anywhere from 20 to 25 different lawsuits challenging these practices. Uh, most recently, uh, there was a case that got before the court in 2013 involving the University of Texas with a white female plaintiff, and the court uh, essentially upheld its prior decisions, allowing for limited use of race when uh, dealing with applicants uh, to, to your institutions. So uh, one thing that I'll, I'll kind of emphasize for people, Harvard is a private school, and as a private school, it can't violate the Constitution. Uh, but because Harvard receives federal funding, the argument was that its admissions policy was violating the 1964 Civil Rights Act because it says you can't, uh, can't distribute federal funding to people who discriminate on the basis of race. It's illegal under the law. And as you rightly pointed out, the Harvard case was brought on behalf of Asian American students, and they, they alleged a couple of interesting things. The first was that the school was violating the guidelines for affirmative action that uh, Professor Moses just summarized in, in her assessment of the case. So that's kind of the big picture argument. The second and more specific argument is that they claim the admissions policies discriminates against Asian students in favor of white students. Now, what's interesting is I think about 30% of Harvard's incoming class this coming year is Asian. So it's not like there are no Asians on the campus, but the argument from the plaintiffs is that number would be even higher if the university wasn't intentionally limiting Asian enrollment on campus, especially when you look solely at the test scores um, and other uh, academic indicators in which Asians uh, claim to routinely outperform other ethnicities. So the belief is that if they didn't do that, then Harvard and some of these other prestigious schools, at least according to the plaintiffs, would look too foreign. And that's why you had this intentional discrimination. One of the things they pointed to was that Harvard instituted as a part of its admissions process, something called a personal rating system. 
that evaluated the leadership ability, the social skills, personality traits, et cetera, of its applicants. And the litigation showed that Asian students consistently performed lower than other ethnicities when it came to this personal rating system. And that was one of the theories that the plaintiffs offered in terms of why their, their numbers were essentially being suppressed in favor of really white kids because, uh, again, the, the litigation revealed that about four out of every 10 white kids get admission preferences for being either athletes, children of alums, which are you know called a legacy preferences, uh, donors, faculty, staff relations, all those things they said are playing a role in the, the admission of other students, but not Asian students. So we've seen this before, right? Over history, we've seen how sometimes minorities are pitted against each other. And underlying all those arguments is that Black and Hispanic kids with similar scores have a much better opportunity and get it admitted to these schools as opposed to Asian and white kids. So that's that's kind of a, it's, it's a rudimentary summary, but a summary nonetheless of what the arguments were that they tried to make before the court. And clearly the court was receptive to hearing. Professor Moses, you want to add anything to that? I think Professor Corbett hand covered most of it. Yeah, and I, um, both of you have talked about the the precedent, and of course we've got um, the Baki case going back to 1978, and then of course the Greta decision, um, the Fisher decision, and when we think about affirmative action and the way it was the way it came about initially before we had the Baki case, the thought was that you needed there to be some leveling of the playing field because of um, intentional efforts on the part of the government and institutions to prevent African-Americans from being able to take advantage of these institutions and programs so that you have affirmative action in order to address the discrimination that occurred in the past. Now, of course, we know, beginning with the Baki case, the court said that um, remedying past discrimination is not a compelling justification for affirmative action. Can you two talk about, because we'll, we'll get into the meat of the decision, but in terms of laying out the, um, the framework of affirmative action and strict scrutiny, can you talk about, um, Professor Moses, and we'll start with you, what the standard is that the court applied and when looking at what type of um, compelling interests are allowable? So kind of contrasting remedying past discrimination versus a diverse kind of educational environment. Sure. Um, so when we think about the standard that the court is supposed to apply in this case is the standard is strict scrutiny, right? And what that requires is two things. Um, the first is that there be a compelling governmental interest um, that is sought to be um, achieved. And then secondly, that the means to accomplish that interest is narrowly tailored. Um, and so a lot of the litigation related to the affirmative action cases in particular is, of course, well, number one, what is that compelling government's interest? And then secondly, what is the means that's narrowly tailored? Um, as it relates to the compelling governmental interest, um, Justice Powell and Baki in particular is the one who starts with this notion of diversity being a compelling governmental interest. Um, and even though the petitioner Baki won in that particular opinion, um, Justice Powell's 
concurrence related to diversity as a compelling governmental interest kind of lays the groundwork for the other cases going forward. Um, so from there, we then go to, well, what is the means, right? Because in Baki, it was clear that the court wasn't going to accept a quota system, right? You don't set aside a certain number of seats um, for black or brown applicants because that would be um, in violation of the constitution. And so what came to be then was that race can be considered only as a factor, right? And if it's considered only as a factor, it can't, cannot tip the scales um, towards admission for brown, brown and minority applicants, right? So if it's a factor, you're only considering it among other things in an applicant's um, complete application process related to their essay, test scores, GPA, et cetera, and other things. Um, and so I'll stop there um, for, for purposes of our discussion and we'll continue this in a second. All right. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we're talking this hour about the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Donald Corbett. He is a constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law and Professor Tamika Moses, who teaches evidence and criminal procedure here at our fine law school. We're going to take a break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this week on the Legal Eagle Review, we've discussed the U.S. Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Affirmative action policies are created to increase representation of people of color and women in professional spaces, which include higher education institutions. Since the early 1960s, affirmative action policies have opened several doors for minorities to be able to attend predominantly white institutions. However, on June 29, 2023, the United States Supreme Court struck down race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. The court decided that admissions policies violated Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which bars discrimination based on color, race, or national origin. Justice Clarence Thomas, the nation's second African-American justice, wrote in the majority that universities' self-proclaimed righteousness does not afford them the license to discriminate based on race. Nevertheless, Kentonji Brown Jackson, the first African-American woman appointed to the Supreme Court, speaks for many minorities by saying the decision was truly a tragedy for us all. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We have been talking this hour about the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. In essence, overruling prior precedent and striking down affirmative action, at least as it relates to race, as being unconstitutional. We are talking with two of our distinguished colleagues, Don Corbett, constitutional law professor, and Tamika Moses, evidence and criminal procedure professor. So Professor Corbett, right before the break, Professor Moses was sharing her thoughts and providing us insight into 
what the court standard is in addressing affirmative action. And so she was able to shed light on the Supreme Court's decision in Bakke and how um, looking at Justice Powell's decision, which was a controlling decision, that remedying past discrimination was not a compelling interest, but providing for diversity within the educational environment is a compelling interest. Can you share some additional thoughts that you might have on, um, on that standard? And as you do so, if you can then um, lead us into the majority's uh, decision in this case, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' decision. Sure, so I think it's important for people to understand and this is part of what's so frustrating about what I feel like is the duality of these decisions with regard to the positions of the court. Uh, the court will tell you, the majority of its, its members will tell you now that we're an originalist court and we pay attention to the intent behind uh, the language in the Constitution. And then we try to apply that originalist thinking to the things that come before us. Well, uh, Anyone, hopefully anyone, would know that the 14th Amendment, which is where many of these cases arise from, uh, came as a result of the end of the Civil War during the Reconstruction <clears throat> uh, designed to pull the country and rebuild the country back together, and more importantly for this discussion, designed to ensure that all of the newly freed slaves were going to be guaranteed equal protection of the law. And for me, when you think about the, what the goal of affirmative action is, which as you said, is to put people back on, or to the extent you can, to put people back on similar ground after, you know, literally uh, generations of discrimination. It feels like an originalist thought process would embrace affirmative action as a remedy if it's truly an originalist thought process here. But, but one of the things that I think we see through Bakke and Gruder and Fisher, and now this most recent case involving Carolina, is that the court's affirmative action cases have almost always centered on, they've, they've focused on the interests of white people. They haven't really focused on the remedies that these programs are designed to, to uh, create for folks. Powell's opinion in Bakke basically said from the beginning that I don't think that anybody believes that this should exist solely for the benefit of people of color. But what we can say is that maybe it should be permissible because these discussions in these larger groups of bodies may benefit white Americans and not just students of color, right? And, and as you look at that particular principle, which did not get the, the five votes necessary to make it law, but it did provide kind of a foundation for where we are now, then it leads to, fair to say, a lack of, of substantive foundation in these cases going forward, and then the court can make it what it wants it to be. And ultimately, uh, you're, we're going to get a court, as we currently have, that just doesn't really believe that remedying past discrimination is a compelling goal, either because they've never believed that to be the case, or because they believe that we've advanced enough in society that these kind of racially based remedies aren't necessary anymore. And I also think it's really important to, to add when you look at the opinion that was written by Chief Justice Roberts, it continually says in it race-based admissions decisions. And that in and of itself, that language is intellectually dishonest yeah. because both Harvard and Carolina have extensive uh, criteria that they look at when they are addressing who gets into school and who doesn't. 
Harvard has upwards of 60,000 applications a year for 2,000 seats. So they don't just look at Black people and Brown people and say, okay, you get in and you don't, which is what that language would have you believe. And when you hear that as someone from the outside looking in, you're thinking, oh, wow, they're just admitting Black and Brown people uh, and not thinking, not paying attention to anything else that's going on. So to call it merely race-based admissions decisions is really, really not accurate in terms of what each school, and I would venture to guess every school does with regard to these particular decisions. They are not made simply because someone is black or brown. They look at the holistic uh, uh, student application and then they make the best decision they can based on whatever their goals are. Well, you know, in, in light of that, uh... In the majority opinion, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, at the end of uh, the opinion, talks about the ability of admissions uh, people, personnel, to consider the barriers that individuals present individually uh, about their background, uh, barriers that they have uh, confronted. Uh, problems encountered by them because of who they are, where they are, and what they are, and how that has uh, created for them some inspiration, some motivation, uh, and show that uh, they have overcome uh, adversities. How does that differ from the uh, consideration of the word African-American or Hispanic or uh, Asian in the application process, if you can review or consider uh, that the individual's history, but you can't consider the fact that they are a of a particular racial grouping. Is that a difference without a distinction? I think what it what it shows, and I want to be careful here. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I think it it's evidence of. Chief Justice and the majority that signed on to this opinion, it shows I think their racial ignorance because I think what they're trying to say is you can distinguish someone's experience as a person from the racial identity of that person. And for most people of color, those two concepts are intertwined completely. So the fact that he doesn't seem to understand that tells you a lot about what you need to know about how he and his colleagues understand even the concept of what it means to be a person of color and live in this country. It's, it's a ridiculous distinction. It creates more confusion than it actually, uh, than as opposed to serving as a foundation that people can go from. And in that sense, I, I, my, some of my students would stone me for saying this, but in that sense, Justice Thomas's concurrence, which draws a much cleaner line in terms of what's allowed and isn't allowed, at least would be more honest, uh, even if I don't agree with it. But to say that, well, we're happy to have you talk about uh, your experience as a Black person or a Hispanic person or a gay person in your personal essay, but we don't want you checking any kind of boxes suggesting that that's the case. It's, it's, it makes no sense. Not to me, maybe smarter people understand it than I do, than I am, but I don't think it makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. And the only thing I'll add is when you consider the caveat to that, right? So you can write the essay, but school admissions, committees make sure you don't consider this in the way that you currently would consider race, right? And so to me, it kind of highlights, and I think the dissents touch on this a little bit, um, the court's either inability to or unwillingness to consider 
the nature of the affirmative action programs that were before them in these two cases. Um, I think because the inclination was towards gutting, for lack of a better word, um, Grutter in the other cases, it didn't matter whether or not was whether or not race was only a factor in these particular policies. All, all that mattered was we get a second bite of the apple, and um, based on our beliefs that we've had in all of the concurrences and dissents and prior opinions, we're going to make our position the majority in this particular case. And hopefully that still is respectful, for lack of a better word, but um, that's basically uh, my take on that little caveat or that little distinction he provided towards the end, which says, you know, write the essay explaining how race has changed your life or impacted your life, but the admissions committee can't consider that in the same way that they do now which is as just a, but a mere factor in your complete application. And you know, that uh, language in the majority opinion seems to um, be in, in some ways an ineffective response to what Justice Katanji Brown Jackson raised her hypothetical. So you have two students who are talking about their family and, the, and their experience and why it is that they may want to attend UNC. And so you've got, you know, the one student, the one applicant who is saying, you know, my family, you know, I would be the sixth generation to attend UNC and it's that legacy that I want to continue. And then you may have an African-American student who says, my family was prohibited from attending and I would be a first generation to attend and how the treatment of, of that individual's kind of identity would be treated differently. So the admissions officers can take into account that this is a that this person can check the box as a legacy applicant, but the student whose um, family and ancestors weren't able to attend UNC because of their race, the admissions committee cannot consider that in the same way. Uh, Professor Corbett, you mentioned kind of legacy um, categories. Can you talk about how when we say affirmative action, and I always try to remember if I'm, if I'm using the term affirmative action, to say, you know, affirmative action focusing on race, because there is affirmative action that currently exists that is focusing on those that are legacies. Can you talk about that kind of dichotomy and how, in fact, legacies um, fill more seats that might be taken away from Asian Americans than those of black and brown applicants? Sure, I can try. Uh I, the, the basic premise is that if you come from a family that has a history with the institution uh, that you want to attend, then that is sometimes given special consideration as a part of your application process. Now, this is, this is apples to bananas, but as an example, um, I went to North Carolina A&T for undergrad. Both of my parents worked at A&T, and two of my siblings also went to A&T. So it means that when my nephew applies to A&T, as he will, right, uh, then he is going to be considered, he could be considered as a quote-unquote legacy admit. Now, hopefully he'll have his, his grades will be tight enough to where it won't have to matter, but, but uh, that's kind of what the concept looks like. Now, wh where it matters so much in these cases is, as I mentioned before, these seats at these selective institutions are incredibly rare. Again, 60,000 to 65,000 will apply 
to Harvard every year for about 2,000 seats. And, and I think it's important, I don't, I don't want to digress too far, but I think it's important to, to, to reference that these discussions that we're having are largely about these selective institutions, okay? So uh, the smaller schools that have an acceptance rate that's much higher, there's not going to be the same kind of, of math that's going to math in the way that we're talking about right now. But these seats at Harvard and Yale and Georgetown and all these other places where a, a degree uh, from that institution opens up post-grad doors for you, they've become incredibly valuable. So to get into those seats is where the competition is. And as I mentioned earlier, a significant number, and I think when you have that many applications and that many rejection letters, then four white kids out of 10 to get into school, being legacy admits, is a significant thing. So the idea is that if you have a connection or connectivity to that school, either because your parents went there, uh, as Justice Brown Jackson said, like you're a sixth or seventh generation student that's applying there, or you know somebody that wrote an awfully big check to the institution, uh, then they seem to be perfectly fine with that with regard to, even though that certainly looks like treatment that isn't designed to remedy anything other than to continue this relationship with this with this donor or this community or this family, whatever the case may be. The pushback about those has been, well, legacy doesn't really come under the equal protection clause in the same way that race does. But if the issue around these particular uh, admissions practices is about merit, which is what everybody tells you it's about, then I have yet to hear how the merit of someone who happens to be related to someone who went to Harvard three generations ago uh, it makes that person a better fit for the institution than somebody that may not have. And, and added to that, and, and Professor Moses, I want to get your thoughts on this, is that when you're talking about legacies and you're talking about those that are able to write those huge checks, they are overwhelmingly white families. So even though they say, you know, that doesn't relate to race, well, it does, in fact, if your ancestors were explicitly precluded from attending this institution. You won't have that same type of legacy. Um, Professor Moses, any any thoughts? Yeah, I think it goes back to what um, Professor Corbett was talking about in Justice Jackson's dissenting opinion, where she has the example of these two students that have one who would essentially be the legacy admit um, and the other student who's a person of color. Um, and so what I'd say to that is, I, I think you've made the point, is that although they say, well, that's, you know, it doesn't relate to relate, relate doesn't relate to race because it's based on something completely different. When you kind of pull back the veil and you look underneath, it does benefit white students um, more frequently do than it does any other group. Um, and so it just goes back to the original premise that whenever we're talking about something that benefits black and brown students, it may be a problem. There's a higher level of scrutiny. We need something that's more concrete so that we as a judiciary can analyze it and make sure that the school is adhering to the test that we set out. And I think that's unfair on, on several levels, but I think the most unfair thing about this particular opinion is how they kind of misconstrue or misuse history to make their points. And I think somebody made this point earlier related to the 14th Amendment and how it's used in the majority opinion to knock down something that benefits black and brown communities. And the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to benefit black and brown communities. Well, you know, following up on, on that point, uh, Justice uh, Thomas 
uh, spent a uh, considerable uh, number of pages in his uh, concurring opinion dealing with uh, African-Americans' uh, availability uh, at uh, HBCUs and how uh, those institutions have favorably received them and produced outstanding uh, characters or outstanding uh, contributors uh, to, the, uh, to the society. Uh, we're going to take our break uh, right now. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Don Corbett and Professor Tamika Moses about the uh, recent affirmative action uh, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. want you to stay with us and we will return uh, to that discussion in a couple of minutes. So uh, we'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I am third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. On Sunday, July 16th, the community of Durham will be holding a North Carolina food truck fair at Durham Central Park. The event was created to highlight North Carolina-owned businesses that may not have had the opportunity to be a part of the state fair. The food truck fair will include over 30 food trucks and merchandising vendors, live music and entertainment, inflatable rides, game zones, and most importantly, free parking. Meals on Wheels of Durham will also be collecting donations at the event to continue their efforts to provide resources to the community of Durham. The event will be held at 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. at Durham Central Park, located at 501 Foster Street in Durham, North Carolina. This is Kiana Woods with your Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening uh, as we continue this uh, discussion of the most recent uh, decisions from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court dealing with uh, affirmative action, one of the last uh, opinions issued by the court uh, this, uh, this term. Uh, and I guess kind of part of the uh, history of the Supreme Court you uh, issued uh, that uh, opinion that is most controversial as you are on your way out of town and the limo is lined up to uh, take you to your uh, uh, your summer retreat. Uh, uh, so, but anyway, we, 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 I raised the issue of Justice Thomas in his concurring opinion for the purpose of looking at the impact of this uh, decision on uh, HBCUs and their uh, admission uh, processes and how is it going to impact uh, those of us who are at HBCUs and those students out there who now have to make some decisions about whether to uh, uh, apply to one of these uh, selective institutions or whether they should cast their lot uh, at the uh, HBCU uh, level. So. Uh, why don't we start with uh, Professor uh, Moses uh, on this and then go to Professor Corbett, who has had that uh, sterling, sterling uh, background, sterling background with uh, an HBCU at uh, A&T. So, uh, Professor Moses. So I think the natural consequence, of course, of this opinion will be that the HBCUs will see a rise in their applicant pools. 
Um, and the question is going to be, number one, how do they sift through all those applications? Um, but number two, um, who's going to provide the resources for these schools to accommodate these additional um, students? Um, outside of that, when you think about the role of HBCUs and when they were started, they were started because we could not attend other institutions uh, where white folks attended, right? And so if we are being pushed out of these elite institutions through the end of affirmative action, um, the question I think that's going to be raised later is whether or not the court can apply similar restrictions to the application process at HBCUs. Um, I think HBCUs have to stick to their mission, right, which is serving underserved populations, which often include Black and Brown communities. Um, and so I, I think they have a heavy task ahead um, in terms of really sifting through these applications and seeing who they'll be able to admit with the limited resources that they have. Professor mm -hmm. Corbin. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because I, 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 as we talked about in the last segment, even if the focus, I think that the focus is on, like I said, this, these selected elite institutions where the, the seats are so rare, that clearly, is, as was mentioned earlier, the domino impact will fall on all institutions. So I'm not sure that kids that were going to apply at Harvard are now going to you know, turn around and, and apply only to places like A&T and Southern Jackson State. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But I do think that if you think about just the law school, uh, the law schools in the state, we have, I think, five or six. And maybe now we see more applications from students that may be thinking about, may have been thinking about Elon or Campbell, where their race can no longer be taken into account pursuant to this decision. And then it becomes, as Professor Moses said, you know, do you have the, it's, it could be a good problem to have in the big picture. But then the question becomes, you know, do we have the resources and the infrastructure to support the additional uh, populations that we may end up attracting by default? So, you know, my, I, I sat on the admissions committee once upon a time, and, and the reason I'm a little bit reticent about it, about this kind of, a, I understand why we're having the conversation, but I always want people that want to come to Central because Central is their choice of school that I don't want people to come here because they couldn't get in where they wanted to go. So if we see the influx of applications that we think we will, I hope it is because those individuals are truly interested in going to a place like Central or Howard or A&T, as opposed to just saying, well, I can't get into any of these white schools like I thought. I guess I'll just apply over here and see what happens. Um, that, I think, would, would have a counterintuitive effect on what we're talking about. And, you know, to that point, that's one of the reasons why sometimes this discussion about affirmative action in the selective institutions um, doesn't completely resonate with me because the argument is the only way we can diversify leadership positions and, and um, get to that upward mobility is for students to go to the Harvards and the Yales and the UNCs and as a product of two HBCUs, both undergrad and law school. Um, Tamika, is a, uh, she and I both went to <laughs> Howard Law. Um, and, it, you know, I, I know full well that going to an HBCU, two HBCUs, afforded me much more in terms of opportunities, in terms of my growth and development that has allowed me to be in spaces 
where I otherwise probably would not be or certainly would, would not have felt as comfortable. So I, I get the, the, the point that's being raised. Um, and I do think that we should, that people should be able to go to whatever schools that they choose to go to. But I don't want the, the narrative to be that since you know, our numbers at Harvard will be reduced, that that necessarily means that we don't have leaders in, in these you know, postgraduate spaces. And I think, it's in, I think it's incumbent upon us as educators at HBCUs that we communicate to our students that you are able, capable, and should be at these, at the tables at all levels, right? Because NCCU School of Law prepared you for those places. So, so my hope is that um, maybe um, we have, we can use this as an opportunity at an HBCU to convey that message and to make sure notwithstanding the efforts to keep us out of some of these more elite places that we can continue to grow our leaders and develop our leaders who we will, we will see across the board at all institutions and at all levels. Um, having said all that, it one part of the opinion that I wanted to get your thoughts on kind of related to this is that we know with the, um, particularly the uh, Grutter case, the, the green brief from the military, right? And in, in talking about the need to be able to focus on race was important um, because they want, the military wanted to make sure that there were diverse people and voices and experiences at the leadership level um, in the military because the you know, kind of population of the military was so diverse. And Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, basically said, well, this rule doesn't apply to the military. So, so it's okay to have um, race be one of many factors when you're looking at military institutions, but not when you're looking at other institutions. So, you know, it, it's okay. And I think um, uh, Justice Brown Jackson had this in her dissent. It's okay to have diversity in the bunker, but not the boardroom. So can you two kind of share your thoughts on what seems to be a, a one, not explained why it is that you would have, why it's so important at the military level, at these military educational institutions, but that doesn't transfer over if you buy into the argument that you need um, diverse applicants and students at the Harvards and the UNCs and the Yales, uh, that we don't need that same type of diversity in the boardrooms. I guess I can start, um, and I think what I'll start with is the fact that I'll, I'll provide this, that I am a military brat, um, so I grew up an Army brat, um, heard lots of stories about my parents' time in the military and the experiences they had, um, but when I read this footnote as well as Justice Jackson's response to it, I couldn't help but just go back to thinking about our history as a nation, right? As a nation, we've never had an issue sending Black and brown bodies off to war to fight on behalf of a nation that doesn't respect them as an individual, right? So when you're off at war, you're American, you're 100% a part of us, but when you come back, right, we don't recognize you as such. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's always going to be that carve out for the military for black and brown individuals in particular, because that's what we know as a nation. Um, and I think that it is extremely hyper 
hypocritical because of the fact that you can have leaders in the military, great, you know, diverse leaders, but you also need those leaders, as you mentioned, in the boardroom, in the halls of the schools, in many different areas, in tech, everywhere, because again, those diverse experiences matter. Um, and because this society is overwhelming, overwhelmingly black and brown. And so all of our perspectives need to be represented in every arena. That's Corbin. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't know whether you wanted me to chime in or not. I can't say any better than she just did. I feel like, you know, the, the, the question I would love to ask Chief Justice Roberts is you're staying out of the way because you are presuming that the military is the best judge of how to create leaders within that particular community. So you're staying away there, but yet you have injected yourself into those same discussions when it comes to uh, the formulation of an undergraduate institution. And why do you feel like those things are different? If what we want is elite leadership, no, whatever, no, regardless of the context, then why do you feel like it's cool to defer to the military as a court, but not cool to defer to the institutions themselves that 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 many of the people who become leaders in the military will end up graduating from before they go to the military in the first place? So I, I would love to hear his answer to that. Uh, the, the cynical response would be that for many of the conservatives who have wanted to see affirmative action come down in higher ed, they don't have the same investment in in what happens in the military. I don't think they value it in the same way. They care when it's time to protect our you know, interests abroad, either present or future, but they don't care enough for their own kids to, to fight for those interests you know, on the front lines. So I just really feel like it's not as big of a priority for them in terms of what they feel needs to be protected. Uh, but that, that in some ways is a separate issue from why Chief Justice Roberts feels like it's different. And like I said, I would love to ask him that question and see what his response is. You know, in, in light of the fact that we're, we're in North Carolina with a uh, uh, UNC system, which is composed of both uh, PWIs, uh, predominantly white institutions, and HBCUs. Uh, how do you anticipate or expect the uh, UNC system now uh, to respond uh, to uh, this decision in mandating how uh, admissions uh, need to be tailored going forward here in, uh, in North Carolina? So uh, we'll start with Professor Corbin again. It, that's, it's the $5 million question, right? I, I do not know. I do not know. And uh, I think that the question, not just for North Carolina, but for universities nationwide, is how much are you willing to commit to this principle, you know, and, and what are you willing to do to commit to this idea that, that diversity on campuses, you know, whether it's racial or socioeconomic or political, whatever the case, does create a healthier learning environment. When you look at a place like California, for people who don't know, they voted on a, a law called Proposition 209, which basically banned affirmative action. Uh, and it took California like 18 or 20 years to get the enrollment of black and brown students back to where it was prior to Proposition 209. But the key thing was that they stayed committed to the principle of doing that. They had some trial and error, and now they're approaching those numbers again. So the question I would have, Professor Joyner, is, is how committed is the Board of Governors uh, to allowing UNC system schools to exploring how we can continue to do these things to create the campuses that we all want? 
cynically, I can tell you that I believe that the population of African-Americans on the football and basketball teams of our institutions is not going to change. So the question is, are you willing to, if you're willing to allow it in that context, are we willing to allow it in other contexts, even though there's no immediate financial benefit in the same way? And I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to see. Professor Moses. I agree with Professor Corbett, right, that we don't know, but the question is going to be how committed are they to pursuing this goal of diversity? Um, and I think the second thing to add to that is you're also going to have to be ready for litigation, right? The court kind of left this door open about how you're supposed to uh, scrutinize these essays talking about race and adversity. Um, and so once the UNC system or any system um, develops their strategy going forward, they have to be ready for litigation because this is by no means over. Yeah, and that whole litigation issue, of course, um, and, and we know that this has been a long time coming. This has been in the making for, for decades, um, as Professor Corbett has mentioned. And we know that they will be looking at the numbers. Um, and regardless of what the schools say in terms of what, what measures they use to select their incoming class, if the numbers remain constant, the assumption will be that you know, race was considered because in fact, Harvard was saying that that was part of their admissions process is kind of looking at the makeup of the class racially and making sure that it didn't drop below. So um, we know that they're already kind of priming these lawsuits. And can you two kind of share your thoughts on what does that say about um, where this country is going? And this kind of ties into our current political environment. I think it ties into the um, emphasis of um, removing any type of education, focusing on black experiences, focusing on the history of, of slavery, of discrimination, um, critical race theory. This all seems to be part of, and maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist, but it all seems to be playing into those that are trying to prevent those of us who have historically been marginalized and discriminated against from being able to excel in this country. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on what this means, this kind of current political situation and this opinion and what we know will happen in terms of future lawsuits that are being prepared even today? Professor Corbett. That was a mouthful. I'm gonna do the best I can to try to respond. I feel like, you know, we're, we as a country are still having kind of the same conversation that we had since the end of the Civil War, which is what kind of country are we going to be? You know, who's going to be prioritized? You know, are we going to try to weave everybody into this thing and have a multiracial democracy? Or are we going to keep it where it's much more hierarchical based on race and, and income? And to your point, I feel like what we're seeing now is consistent with America's historical arc regarding race, because every time you see black people or brown people move forward to address our societal's racial discrimination, oppression has always been met with backlash, always been met with charges of, of unfair preferences and the like. And, and historically, you can see that throughout many generations. And a lot of people will tell you now that, that President Obama's elevation to the presidency in some ways 
produced the presidency of, of Donald Trump. And now we're seeing some of the backlash that you referenced about that based on the perception of what that change means for some people in our society. So, you know, I think when you look across the broader landscape, you mentioned critical race theory. You can look and see these state initiatives to eliminate diversity, inclusion, and equity programs. You know, I think there's aggressive efforts to delegitimize a lot of efforts to foster racial equity. You can see the same thing with regard to the gay and the trans community. And if you want to go one step further, you can say that the decision overturning Roe, you know, was was a backlash against the some of the power that women have accumulated over time. So, so it's 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 kind of a weird place we're in as a country. We've always been able to kind of pull ourselves out of it, but but this one feels different than the others. So, you know, this decision, unfortunately, I think lays a little bit of a found, it, it adds more foundation to some of what we're seeing than is necessary. Can I say one more thing real quickly? Um, I, I don't know whether people have had opportunity to do it or not, but this, of course, was Katanji Brown-Jackson's first uh, term as a Supreme Court justice. I would really, really encourage people to go back and read her dissent um, in this uh, UNC and Harvard case. It is a, it, it, it's, it's brilliant in words that I can't begin to describe. It's easy to understand. And, and I think the voice that she is lending to the court, not just in this case, but in all the cases where she has been a very aggressive, very assertive member in her very first term, um, I, you know, I, I'm not that she needs me to be proud of her, but I am incredibly proud that that, that she is on the bench and and representing herself uh, so well. So I, I wanted to throw that in there. I, I didn't know if I was going to have another opportunity to do it, so I apologize for freestyling, but I I wanted to say it. Yeah, thank you for that, Professor Moses. Very quickly, I, I think what this tells us is just how fractured our democracy truly is. Um, you, you saw it in the erasure or the attempted erasures of African-American history and other things that you mentioned, April, but now you also see it in the court, right? You, you see them rewriting history, you see them not relying upon precedent, not applying the correct um, test to certain cases, and right after right after right is being snatched away um, from those who have become accustomed to a certain way of life. Um, and so now we're in a position of basically trying to figure out if this is something we are going to push back against in the courts. And since we're, we're in the legal academy here, or this is something we're just going to roll over and accept. Um, I think we do need to go back to some of our forefathers, right? In terms of Charles Hamilton Houston's, the Thurgood Marshall's, the Pauline Murray's, and really getting back into that fight, fighting spirit that they had. Um, during the times that they were before the court and establishing cases that kind of helped us um, accept or enjoy the, the way of life we've, in, we've enjoyed for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. And um, I, I appreciate you uh, closing us out with that, that phrase, fighting spirit. And you two have provided us with some wonderful insight. So we have a better understanding of this opinion, the importance of it and can begin thinking about what our response will be. Um, and so we will um, take in that suggestion of, of thinking about ways that we can fight back. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law, and Professor Tamika Moses, who teaches evidence and criminal procedure, both here at NCCU School of Law. Always a pleasure having them enlighten us. 
And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.